Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Leanna Morgan is a USA Today best-selling author of Montana Sweet Romance, with over a million downloads for her books and a following on BookBub of more than 53,000. And this former librarian runs her highly successful and lucrative book business from her peaceful home in Wellington, New Zealand. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today on The Joys of Binge Reading, Leanna talks about what's possible in this new world of indie publishing, global reach and the struggle with an international pandemic. Leanna's Christmas book, the first of her Santa's Secret Helper series, Christmas on Main Street, is one of the books we're featuring in our 12 Days of Christmas giveaway. This is our way of saying thank you to you, our listeners and friends, for your support and encouragement in a tough year for us all. The 12 Days of Christmas giveaway features four holiday reads, two modern and two historical, from four authors, all of whom are appearing on the podcast, in one holiday reading bundle. So that's four books to four lucky listeners every week for four weeks. Enter now on our Joys of Binge Reading website or on the Binge Reading Facebook page. The offer closes December 19, so put your name in now, don't miss out. Everybody entered will get four chances to win. Leanna's got lots of other first in series free books on her website. You'll find the links for that in the show notes for this episode. So if you're interested in her sweet romance, take a look. You'll find some places to start that won't cost you a cent. But now, here's Leanna. Hello there, Leanna, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. It's awesome to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Look, we've known each other for years through the New Zealand romance writers, and I've always been a great admirer of the way that you work. You, like me, are a Kiwi. You live in Wellington, New Zealand, but you've developed a huge following in the US. So tell us about how you got embarked on this amazing adventure. What was it that kick-started you? Of all things, Jenny, it was turning 40 because I decided that the last 10 years between 30 and 40 had gone so fast that I felt, felt as I blinked and missed the whole 10 years. So I decided I wasn't going to let that happen in the next 10 years before I turned 50. So I thought of one thing I, I wanted to do to kind of feel as I'd achieved something in that 10 years. So I decided to write a book. And that's how it all started. I wrote one book and then I really quite enjoyed it. So then I wrote a second one and I just kept going from there. So by the time I turned 50, I had about 20-ish books that I'd published. And so that's how it started. My gosh, you make it sound so easy. And you've been remarkably productive. As you mentioned, all those books, they've got different settings and different series, but your genre and tone is very consistent. It's sweet, small town romance with real life emotion 
and pain that usually, almost always anyway, finds a happy resolution. That, that would be fair to say, I think, wouldn't it? It is, it is. When you started out, was indie publishing a thing? Because you are now indie published, aren't you? That's right. And have been from the beginning, apart from a little foray into the world of literary agents. I enjoy indie publishing and I think it's it's been amazing for me. Yeah, yeah. You certainly have got it sort of tabbed in, in terms of how to proceed, and we'll get into that a bit later. But we're delighted that we've got your Christmas series, the number one book in your Santa's Secret Helper series, in our giveaway this month, the 12 Days of Christmas giveaway. That one is called Christmas on Main Street, but you're about to publish number five in that series, Endless Love. So that's an idea of, that's the way you work, that you have quite a few books in a series and you publish them pretty close together. What kind of planning goes into making that all happen? Well, it's it's quite interesting because usually what I have is I plan a series, um, two series before it's actually published. So I start introducing characters that are going to be in a series probably a year or to a year and a half before the reader actually has their individual story. So planning a series is all about creating vivid characters that readers can connect with and just giving readers a little snippet of those people until, until it's their time. So for Santa's Secret Helpers, all of the characters that are in those books have appeared in the previous series, which is Sapphire Bay series. And both those series are set in Sapphire Bay, which is a a fictional small town on the shore of Flathead Lake in Montana. And the next series I'm about to write, the readers are very familiar with one of the main characters in in that series already. And she's been, Mabel has been in the... Um, last 12 books I wrote. So she's a familiar character and that that will inspire readers to kind of pick up that series and keep going. It seems remarkably prescient to me because you started this, you say, a year ago, but the world has changed so much over 2020. And this book is a church is at the centre of it, a pastor who's very much offering support and comfort to people who are going through hard times, helping with housing, with childcare, with all sorts of needs in the community. And it's got a real resonance for people with the things that they've had to endure this year. So I imagine that you've really picked up a lot of interest for that, those books because of that. I think they have because they talk about people being kind to each other and, and helping each other. And that's really resonated with people. But that sort of theme carries through in my other series as well. So in the Bridesmaids Club, I've got um, four friends who start up a business called the Bridesmaids Club, and they receive donated wedding dresses and bridesmaids dresses from people all around America, and they give them to people who can't afford their own wedding dresses or bridesmaids dresses. And so that, that whole theme of unconditional love and really helping people. I like that. That really makes my heart beat fast. And so, and I think it does for a lot of people, you know, we've all been in situations where something has been a little bit unachievable and all it takes is a smile from someone or a helping hand and it can just make the world of difference. So that's what's what my characters do. So in the Sapphire Bay series, the, the big the big thing there is a tiny home village 
and the pastor of the Connect Church, John, he is building 25 tiny homes with the help of the community that can house people that possibly wouldn't have the ability to rent a property, that they might have some issues that they're dealing with in their life. And so they're making the community are making houses for these people. So, you know, Santa's Secret Helpers is all about Christmas wishes and the church are organising fundraisers to raise money for people who have had other anonymous people say that they need something special. So um, they're raising money to do that. It's all about giving back. It's, it's idealistic, it's optimistic, it's positive, and some people might say it's a little bit naive, and it's definitely different from literary fiction, where they tend to take rather dark, sort of self-involved, pretty depressing themes often. Do you, do you feel that you get a bit of kickback from people who say, oh, well, life just isn't like that, that kind of... Uh, no (laughs) you don't oh that's good (laughs) no because some of my books deal with quite interesting themes I mean I I have I've had uh, main characters who have dementia but of course a cure is found and you know I never the thing is with life is that nothing is ever impossible and when you if someone had said you know, 100 years ago that you could operate on someone and have no problems with um, bugs and all kinds of things, you know, or or if someone had said that in the 1970s or 80s that there was going to be a some medication for AIDS or for HIV, you know, that would have been seen as dreaming, you know, but, but nothing, unless you actually start somewhere and try and make a difference, everything will stay the same. So with my books, I try and and take an issue that someone has or different issues and find a solution for it. And if that means inventing a, um, a, a, a therapeutic herbal remedy that will help someone, then that's what I do. And who knows, you know, in another 50 years time, it might have been something sitting under our nose that could cure Alzheimer's. But a lot of there's a lot of research that goes into making these assumptions. Like you know, for the Alzheimer's thing, I looked up turmeric and all the different herbs that can actually help with inflammation and memory and other sort of symptoms of dementia. And so, it's I try and base what I'm suggesting on on some kind of plausible reality. And I think that's what people enjoy because they'll go on the internet and look it up and think, ah, that's where she saw that. <laughs> That's wonderful. Obviously, your readers love that optimism and positivity. That's something that they come back for over and over again. They do. And, you know, and I think that it makes them feel good because they feel as though they're part of this caring community. In fact, I I had an email from someone yesterday in New Zealand and she said that she laughed when she saw a reference to New Zealand in a book and she thought maybe it was just a one-off. And then she read another two or three of my books and realised that I put little snippets of New Zealand inside of my books. And she said, I, I, I hope that all of the small towns in New Zealand, I wish that they were like that, you know, because they're so positive and so caring. And I told her, they are, they're out there. <laughs> cleverly adjusted your books to the feedback that you've got. Now, you mentioned the very first ones you started with, your first series was Montana Brides. 
and it was set in Bozeman, Montana. Now, I'm, I'm just curious as to how we, we, we've, we've learned that you were a Wellington librarian who decided you wanted to write a book. It's then a very big jump to deciding, oh, I'll set it in Montana. How did that bit happen? It was really interesting. In a lot of ways, my dad, I think, subconsciously played a part in this because dad loved listening to country music. When all the kids in school were listening to ABBA and Meatloaf, I was <laughs> listening to Dolly Parton and, and John Denver. And, and he loved, you know, Westerns, anything to do with, with the Wild West So and Cowboys. And so when I started writing my first book, Gracie and Forever Dreams as a New Zealander, because people said, write about what you know. So I knew about New Zealand. So that was good. And I, she needed to go somewhere to find her birth father because we'd already had a conversation about what she needed to do in the story. So I, I had a Google map of, of the States because I knew that she wanted to go to the United States. And that's probably my cowboy dad coming out in me, but anyway. <laughs> and so then I looked and then Montana just sort of like flashed in front of my eyes. And then I sort of did a close-up of Montana and Bozeman sort of winked at me as if to say, this is where you need to come. <laughs> and so I thought, okay, we'll have a look at Bozeman. So I went online and Bozeman was a fantastic place for a writer to set books it's got a huge IT industry, physics and science industry, Montana State University is in Bozeman. It's got a huge arts and culture scene. The community is so environmentally aware and really push sustainability. And they've been doing that for decades, which flies in the face of some other areas that, you know, just don't seem to care. And they also have just an amazing ability to to have that urban and rural intersection in life. So I thought, this is a pretty amazing place. I'm going to write my books and set them in Bozeman. And that's where we ended up. Fantastic. Now, you did visit Bozeman yourself, but it was, I think, sometime after your first Bozeman books had been published. Tell us about what that visit meant to you. I loved it. I went with mum and it was about four years after I'd, I'd written the first book in the Montana Bride series and it was like stepping into your imagination. Everything that I had seen on YouTube or Ranch's wife's blogs or any information, pictures that I'd been able to find on the internet, it was almost like it came to life. And I remember walking into a building with mum and saying, I've been here before. And she said, no, you haven't. And I said, I have. It felt <laughs> like one of those deja vu moments and I realised that I'd set one of my books in this bookstore but it, I turned the building into a fashion boutique and so it had a beautiful mezzanine floor and a pressed tin ceiling and you know there were floor to ceiling books in this shop and it was absolutely amazing but in my store there were beautiful gowns and dresses and the upstairs was where the fashion designer would create these gorgeous designs. So I just walked around the store with my mouth open. It was just amazing. It was really, really good. That's gorgeous. Look, all your books are linked in some way and some characters may appear in more than one book. Now, the Christmas books, for example, are set in Sapphire Bay, which you've already mentioned. And you've got two other series, which tap into popular romance tropes. You've got the Emerald Lake Billionaires and Protectors, which is more of a security 
strongman sort of series, but they're very different worlds from the ranch and cowboy locations of Montana Brides, but you manage to bring them all together. That takes some very clever planning, I would think. What I did with those ones is the Emerald Lake Billionaires series. My billionaires are really nice guys. They're the type of man you'd love to meet. They've got lots of money and they're not shy of spending it, especially on the woman they love. And so, and they live, the Emerald, Emerald Lake is this beautiful lake on the, just probably half an hour out of Bozeman. It's not real. It's all in my fictional area. And there's four properties around the lake, which belong to each of the four heroes in my four series of the book. Yeah, I tied that series with the others by looking at what jobs they do. So the hero in the first book of that series, John Fletcher, he owns and started a a big high-end security company called Fletcher Security. And so the people he's employed as bodyguards, they transport really high-value items around the States those bodyguards form the heroes or heroines in other books in the Protector series. So even the Protector series, although it is has more of a, a care, it has more of a caring side of it rather than a straight, you know, alpha male type. Yes. And so the the the, the title of the series, The Protectors, isn't so much about protecting things and property as far as the security company go. They become the heroes and heroines of those stories become their own protectors. So the hero in the first book is called Tank, and he is the protector of a woman he's sent to find. And one of the books is about a girl called a woman called Sam, and she works for Fletcher Security. She's a real IT whiz. She's sent to protect a computer programmer who people are looking for. So it's each of the characters becoming a protector rather than um, that alpha male sort of interpretation it could be. Yes, yeah, yeah. Sapphire Bay, the six books in that series, and now you're doing Return to Sapphire Bay. And it did. I did spark in my mind the thought that that might have been something that readers had asked for a return by popular demand. Was it anything like that? or No, the whole premise of Return to Sapphire Bay is more about four granddaughters or four daughters of a woman that our, my readers have met, although she's been in the last 12 books, of her four daughters return to Sapphire Bay after the death of their grandmother. So it's their return rather than coming back to a town that we haven't been in for a while because... That is also set in Sapphire Bay. So I'm looking forward to writing that series. It's I've got some wonderful characters and some really good storylines. So I'm, that's, I'm really excited about that. So how far are you, are you with that at the moment? Have you got any covers created? Yes, I always have my cover designer, Stephen Novak from Novak Illustration. He designs my covers with me probably about a year before the first one comes out. So those covers are all done for those four books in that series. The blurbs are all done and the pre-orders are all up. So I know what's going to happen in each book and and so do my readers. So they pre-order the books and I publish a book every three months. So it means that my readers, from when they read the first one, they'll only ha- from when that's available, they'll basically only have another nine to 12 months to get the whole series that's just amazing. That is an amazing production line that you've got going there. And 
takes a remarkable amount of foresight. I, I think you must have a very good sense of intuition because a lot of this must be driven on a sense of intuition. Do you do you ask every character in your books what they want to do or what they want to achieve or do you sort of take that sort of approach? I do, but that all happens way before because I'm planning in advance and because I'm I'm wiggling little characters into my books as little cameo roles who are going to appear later. I know and my readers know, already know what those people want. Okay. They, yeah. they have a they don't know specifically why, but they know what what they want and how what they're doing in their lives. So that's how I get my and by having the blurbs done a year in advance, I've already thought about that in my head as I'm writing the blurb. You know, what do that what do my character hero and heroine do? When do they meet? What's stopping them from getting together? It's all that type of thing that I need to know. If I'm going to have a character that's going to be really cantankerous and a bit and a bit mean and nasty, they can't be cantankerous and mean and nasty when they first appear and then suddenly turn out really nice by the time their book comes up. There has to be something that's irritating them beyond anything. And my readers have to know that. They have to know that beneath that irritation or that standoffishness or that shyness or that that overworking kind of philosophy in life, there's got to be a reason for it. And they want to know as, as much as the next person what that reason is. So they'll buy the book to find out what makes that person tick. You are really creating a whole society, aren't you? And I, I've seen your work suggested that it's similar to Robin Carr and the Virgin River series, which has become a very popular TV show. But you're creating a whole society, a, a world, a fictional world, but it's, it's very much quite encompassing, isn't it? It is. And, you know, you need to have believable characters. Small town life, is it's really fun to write. I like, I like imagining myself on the standing on the shore of, of Flathead Lake. You know, for me as a writer, it gives me as much enjoyment as what my readers get. And I think because New Zealand is so beautiful, you can really appreciate that that sort of synergy between Montana and New Zealand. But, you know, it is really important to, to keep everything um, flowing as far as the series go and to keep those characters really fresh and engaging. How did you decide on Flathead Lake? What happened is when I was still working at the library, we were negotiating a very large contract with a company in America for buying our books. And we'd set up a nationwide consortium so that all the libraries pitched in and we got better discounts on our books. And the gentleman that uh, we were talking to was the chief executive of a big company in the States who provide books to libraries. And he was just telling me on the off chance one day that he used to go to Flathead Lake to go fishing. And there's a, there's a place called Whitefish. And he used to go there um, all the time and it was absolutely beautiful. And when he came to New Zealand to meet us, he loved New Zealand because he said it was, you know, very similar in parts so, to Montana. And so I think that was in the back of my mind. So when I was looking at a new location for a series, because we'd stayed in Bozeman for probably about 15 books and so I wanted a fresh kind of look. And I probably will go back to Bozeman at some stage, but not, not. I'm enjoying Sapphire Bay at the moment. So I thought of Flathead Lake. 
And that's, I went and had a look again on Google and looked at the map and then I looked at YouTube and looked at some videos and I thought, yeah, we could make a, something of this. But this time I created a, an imaginary small town because a lot of the towns around Flathead Lake are incredibly small and I needed a town slightly bigger than that that wasn't a city but was still a reasonable size. So that's why we, we, we came up with Sapphire Bay. <laughs> That's great. Look, moving away from talking about the books, particularly in turning to your wider career, you've referred to that uh, experience you had prior to writing as a librarian, and you were, you rose to a very high level in the library system. It was a lot more than putting books on shelves. Tell us about your previous work before you decided you wanted to be a writer. Well, putting the books on the shelves is really important, actually. <laughs> I think as a librarian, helping the customers and putting books on the shelves is why I started. And, you know, and I used to always think the fairies used to come in at night and put the books on the shelves. But actually, when I became a librarian, that's what I did. So, so when I left when I left the library where I was in, in the Carpety Coast, I was a libraries and arts manager. So I had about 46 staff and I managed four libraries. So it was a big job and I really enjoyed it. But I must say the best part of it was actually helping the customers. And, and as you rise in an organisation, some in, in, in hierarchy, sometimes you, you miss that connection with the community. And that's what I really loved. So the community would always, a lot of the time, find me downstairs putting books on shelves. I couldn't do it all the time, but when I could, I would nip down and do that and then help with inquiries because that's why I became a librarian in the first place. And I think if you, lose, if you lose sight of your community and what's important to your community, then you're not doing your job. And, and that probably ties in with my books. You know, I try and figure out what's important to that community. And yeah. what's important to that community is important to the people. And so my stories have to reflect that. And, yes. and what, my, what my characters do reflects that. And people, my readers love it because they can see similarities with some amazing things that are happening in their communities and it makes them feel good. So, you know, it's, it's a win-win situation. That's lovely. Looking over your career, is there one thing you've done more than any other that you would credit as being the secret of your success? There's probably two things. The first thing would be to set a realistic goal of what you want to achieve when you first start writing. So for some people, they might want to write a family history and the only people that are going to read it are their family. So they're very happy, you know, doing what they're doing. For me, it was when I wrote Forever Dreams to write a book that one person apart from my mum would read and enjoy. So I thought that was an achievable goal. And that goal's changed over the years, but I always try and keep things realistic because you don't want to set yourself up to fail. Writing, it's not easy and it takes a community to support you with family and friends. You know, you just can't do it on your own. So that's important. The other thing that I, I did really well is before I even probably started writing Forever Dreams, I had a clear idea of the market and I didn't reinvent the wheel. I didn't try to do things differently than what was really working well. So I'll give you an example. So when I started writing Forever Dreams, I really enjoyed that. So I wrote another book and then I thought I'm writing a series. 
So then I looked at what some really good authors were doing that was selling a lot of books that had really good reputations. And I looked at what they did for their marketing, how they structured their series, the markets that they were tapping into, the audience they were tapping into, the themes that they were using, and and looking at what resonated with the readers. And that's when I really started putting my business hat on and after a little bit, really, my business hat didn't really um, kick in for probably 12 to 18 months after I first wrote my first book. And that's when I really started thinking about the long-term impact of a series. So that's that's important to think about that. Fantastic. And I think you mentioned to me off-air that you slightly changed the heat level of your romances from when you began. Tell us a little bit about that as well. So when I wrote Forever Dreams... When I first started writing, self-publishing was seen as something you did if you couldn't get a traditional contract. So I wrote Forever Dreams for Harlequin because that was, at that stage, that was the main publisher of romance novels. And so there were set criteria in those books that you had to have. So you had to have, in the particular line I was looking at, they expected one or two love scenes and other, you know, a special set limit on words and lots of other things. And so those expectations I followed through into Forever Dreams because that was the book that I submitted to Harlequin to see if they wanted to accept. Well, my agent did in the end. So those books, when I wrote them, I always had in my head the expectation that I needed to have a love scene or two. And then as I was writing, I think I got to about book four in that series and I suddenly realized that it was nonsense that I didn't have to have love scenes in the books I had to have love and emotion and respect and intimacy but that my characters didn't need to make love and so I started changing the way I wrote You yourself are quite a romantic, I think, in your personal life. I seem to recall hearing about a trip that you and your husband made to the States to renew your wedding vows. Tell us about that. We had a wonderful time, Jenny. Tim and I were celebrating, must have been about our 25th wedding anniversary, and we decided to go to Las Vegas and part of another small trip we were doing and get married with Elvis. So, well, renew our wedding vows with Elvis. So we were serenaded by this amazing man who impersonated Elvis and we had a big limousine ride and it was just fantastic. Our daughter was um, our flower girl and our son was our best man and mum was there to walk me down the aisle. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. Fantastic. And I think there's a link back to your very first book, isn't there? Didn't one of your characters get married at, at uh, Las Vegas? She did. Gracie got married at Las Vegas. So it was like a a full circle of life, a coming around point. And it just felt wonderful to do that. And to, in my imagination, when I'd written that scene in Forever Dreams, it was just imagination. And and again, doing a bit of research on the internet, but to do that ourselves, it was just magic. It was wonderful. Although her circumstances weren't quite as same as ours, so it's <laughs> quite interesting. And did you find that your research was pretty accurate when you went through it yourself? It was, but I liked our Elvis better. He was amazing. He had the wiggle on his hips, really good. 
<laughs> That's great. Look, turning to Leanna as reader, because this is the joys of binge reading, we like to give people some recommendations for books they might not have discovered yet. And I imagine you are a big reader being a librarian at one stage of your life. Tell us about your favourite reads and if you've got something you'd like to recommend to readers and listeners. Well, I, I like reading lots of books and I read a lot more when I was a librarian, but the most fa- my favourite books, anything by Nora Roberts or Janet Chapman, I adore. And also a gentleman called Matthew Riley, he writes kind of James Bond on steroid books. But I also, the book I really, really enjoy and I always go back to is a book called Where the Heart Is by Billy Letts, L-E-T-T-S. And it's about a 17-year-old girl called Novali Nation who hates the number seven because it's all really bad luck for her. She's basically, she's seven months pregnant and her boyfriend leaves her in the parking lot of a Walmart store in the States. And it's about her survival and, and the friends she makes in the small town and the characters. And the, Billy wrote everything so vividly. You could just imagine yourself being in Novalee's shoes and, and going through everything she went through. So that would be my absolute favourite pick for everyone to read. It's funny, you know, I've got a book like that. It's, it, it, I picked it up when I was coming home from university on the bus and just one of those country cafes with one spinning book stand thing and it was called By Grand Central Station I Sat Down and Wept. It was by Elizabeth Smart who I'd never heard of before but discovered later was a well-known poet and it was a a, a so-called fictional story although it was actually based on her own life I discovered years later of a young woman in exactly that situation as well left by her boyfriend pregnant and it it's funny, it resonates, I think perhaps maybe even being in a slightly older age group, speaking for myself, because when I was younger, it was really still a very difficult thing if you became pregnant without having um, a husband at your side. So yeah, those books do seem to resonate, don't they? They do. It's just there's something that pulls at the heartstrings. And this book has actually been made into a movie years and years ago. And it was a good movie, but the book was so much better. It was just so vivid. And and the characters were just, I suppose, because you're using your own imagination instead of watching someone else's imagination unfold. But it's just a beautiful book. Yeah, yeah. Look, we are coming to the end of our time together. So circling around and looking back over this amazing career you've had. It's perhaps only a part of your life, but it's been a remarkable part of your life. At this stage, if you were doing it all over again, is there anything that you would change about it? And if so, what would that be? I don't think there's anything I would change too drastically. I think I made some really good decisions before I started writing. The one thing I would do is this was two things. One thing is I would have joined the self-publishing world a lot earlier. I've left it until 2014, mainly because in the early days, sort of around 2011, there were far less authors. So you had a much easier way of bringing your books to the reader's attention and, and building a really lovely readership. Now it's a lot more difficult. It's still not impossible by any means. The second thing I would do, if anyone was listening, that you can put into action because you can't change the past, would be to start your newsletter. As soon as you even think you'll be writing a book, 
make a website. There's some really wonderful free website templates like Wix or Weebly. They don't cost anything. And you can actually start encouraging people and building interest in what you're writing by having a a newsletter on there that people can join. And you can start sending people little snippets of what you're doing. And that's really important as you grow your career to be able to have that contact with with readers without having to go through retail groups or other promotion companies to to let them know what's happening. Do you mind me asking, how many people do you have on your newsletter list now? I've got about um, 10,500. So I haven't been, I don't actively grow that now. I just let it kind of grow spontaneously. And and that's that's a, a good number. A lot of authors have much, much more than that, but that sort of works for me at this stage. Out at one out out fans, which is what you know you're supposedly looking for, then that's a very nice number to base a, a career on, isn't it? And I, I see you've also got fifty-three thousand or more bookbub followers, which is a huge fan base that you're you're providing um entertainment for. It's wonderful. And I, I really don't know how it happened, but the numbers just sort of t- kept ticking over. And I think that's the power of BookBub. They can reach so many readers and and people enjoy what I'm writing. So it's wonderful to have that a company like BookBub who keep in contact with those um, followers and let them know when new books are out or when there's a sale on one of your books. Yes, it's certainly validation for what you're doing. Well, what is next for Leanna, the writer? What projects have you got under development for the next 12 or 18 months? My next series is called Return to Sapphire Bay, which I think we we touched on. So that's, that's the next probably 10 months of my life back in Sapphire Bay. And then the following series is also going to be set in Sapphire Bay. And they're about some little cottages that a group of people are going to renovate. So I'm really looking forward to writing those. So that'll be most of 2021 and 2022 sorted out. And I I don't want to look too far afield because I might have a brainwave in between those two and and, uh, do something completely different in 2023. (laughs) And I guess from what you've already said that the 2021 one already would have the covers and blurbs done. Yes, they're all done and all available for pre-orders. And I'm really looking forward to writing them. There's some wonderful storylines and some really heartwarming emotional scenes that I can just see in my head already for each of the books. So they're about four sisters who return to Sapphire Bay and the sisters are as different as chalk and cheese and it's going to be a really interesting journey the next 12 months. (laughs) That's great. Look, you sound as if you've got a great relationship with your readers. How do they find you online and where are you most active? Well, probably the easiest place to find me is via my website, so readers can go to lianamorgan.com and I've got all my contact details there as well as some of the free books that are available. And Or you can go to my Facebook page and the link is there as well on my website. And so I'm happy to receive emails. I love hearing from everyone. So feel free to contact me. That's fantastic. I'm sure that people have heard what a a friendly, approachable person you are and you will have lots of them getting in touch. Well, that would be wonderful. Thanks so much for your time today, Leanna. It's been great talking to you. You're very welcome, Jenny. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. 
You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.